Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Charles Marshall here. This is Thursday, January 19th, 2017. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones and good evening to those in the East. Joining me again as co-host is Charles Marshall, who has been a frequent guest on the show. Welcome, Charles. Thank you, Neil. Always good to be on. So tonight we start with dissecting a decision out of the Supreme Court of the state of Montana decided uh, last May, which, frankly, if it hadn't been brought to my attention again, um, I had not read through. Um, I had only uh, read the headnotes on. That decision, which was long overdue, drove a state through the heart, in this case, of Bayview Loan Servicing and inferentially City Mortgage. And then we will evolve into the hidden issue that was uh, that really is presented by the Jacobson case in, in Montana, um, uh, and which relates to what are called table-funded loans. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you for all of you who have donated and continue to donate on a monthly basis. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the Donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, and you think it might have value for others, then, and the work we do with the blog and in other areas that are completely without charge, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So, Charles, are you ready to get into this outstanding decision out of Montana? Uh, absolutely, and you know, even though it did come down in May of last year, particularly in the non-judicial foreclosure states out here in the West, I think this is continu- this decision will continue to have a lot of valence. I think that this decision is, and and I'm saying it now so that people do it. 
um, the wording of this decision is going to be cut and pasted in pleadings across the country because here we have a state Supreme Court coming to the conclusion or the conclusions, plural, that we have been protesting about for more than 10 years. The case is instructive about general policies of the so-called servicers and the so-called trustees and the so-called trusts and everybody in between. How they appoint themselves to different roles, how they use fictitious entities that never existed, how their business model is to force people into foreclosure, and then defend against damage claims and attorney's fees on the basis that they lost and never completed the foreclosure, so the homeowner never suffered any damages. This reminds me of the old story of the child who murders his parents and then asks for clemency from the court on the basis of him being an orphan. Most most of all, what the Supreme Court of the state of Montana gave us is a virtual checklist, not complete by any means, of bad acts by Bayview and inferentially City. And, of course, what you're going to hear now uh, is going to ring a bell with anybody who has had experience with virtually any servicer any trustee on a deed of trust or any trustee of a so-called trust and dealing with U.S. Bank in particular, which is uh, the uh, trustee or the, 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 the name of U.S. Bank is used as trustee on trusts that don't exist and where, uh, in fact, the trust documents refer to other entities. It was a deal some years back where Bank of America sold, according to the paperwork, its right to be trustee of the trusts uh, to U.S. Bank. Um, I have mentioned on this program before and in the uh, and on the blog that I doubt that the position of trustee of a trust is a commodity that can be bought and sold. If you just think about family trusts, if you want one person to be the trustee and uh, uh, that's the person that you trusted, then how would you feel if that person, Uncle Joe, sold it to Aunt Sally, whom you did not like? It would seem to me that such sales and transfers of positions are just part of the ongoing shell game whose primary purpose in actuality is just to confuse everyone, whether it be regulators, lawyers, judges, everyone. And they've certainly done a good job with the media because the media has basically given up on trying to track this with the exception of the pending hearings now on the uh, nomination of Steve Mnuchin, uh, formerly from Goldman Sachs, formerly from One West, uh, known as the foreclosure king, 
nominating him to be U.S. Treasury Secretary. I think you can guess from what I'm saying that I am uh, dismayed by his nomination. Um, the case in Montana, which was already posted on the blog, is Jacobson versus Bayview Loan Servicing and Charles Peterson, trustee, who the court found was not really the trustee. It was decided May 4th, 2016, case DA-15-0108 uh, DA in the lower court and 2016 MT-101 in the Supreme Court of Montana. The Jacobsons made a payment on their loan. There's, here's some quotes that I'm going to give you, highlights. Jacobson's made a payment on their loan on April 30th, but Bayview resisted acceptance of the payment. How many times have you heard that? A Bayview representative told the Jacobson's to stop making payments on their loan in May 2009, advising them that this would help them qualify for a loan modification. I'd say that there's a whole lot more people who have heard that than people who have not. Uh, who thought that they were in the modification process. Bayview represented uh, uh, to the Jacobsons that it would process a loan modification for them, but did not forward an application for the HAMP program until January 2011, which is about two years after the discussion. Bayview reinitiated foreclosure proceedings sec sending a second default letter uh, in 2009 containing language identical to the March foreclosure letter, which left out a number of important things, including misstating the beneficiary under the deed of trust. That would be the mortgagee in a judicial state. Uh, Montana is non-judicial. So... Um, um, Bayview failed to send a notice of acceleration and pro and provide a certain date for cure. Notice how these are things which in many, most courts, in fact, were deemed to be de minimis, not important, irrelevant, etc. Um, this is a case where the trial court found substantial damages in six figures, um, against Bayview and then reimposed more damages uh, as Bayview continued to try to uh, press the issue and get the consumer, despite the fact that the, uh, the homeowner was represented by counsel, tried contacting them directly to go around the decision that had been made and in which Bayview lost. The FDCPA, this is a quote from the Supreme Court, not from me, is a strict liability statute which specifically provides the use of any false representation or deceptive means to collect or attempt to collect any debt or to obtain information regarding a consumer. That's at 15 U.S.C. section 1692E sub 10. The FDCPA was enacted to eliminate abusive debt collection practices by debt collectors to ensure that those debt collectors who refrain from using 
uh, abusive debt collection practices are not competitively disadvantaged, and to promote consistent state action to, to protect consumers against debt collection abuses. One of the slick strategies used by services after they lose the case is to contact the homeowner directly, even if they're represented by counsel. Bayview was uh, uh, given the shaft for doing that. Now, here are some of the additional quotes that I know are going to resonate with a lot of people. Now, Neil, before you, before you get into that, I would like to address this FDCPA component. I think this okay. is a really big deal. This is a really big deal, particularly out west and, and all the non-judicial foreclosure states, which essentially all the states of the Ninth District are primarily non-judicial foreclosure. Some, like California, are overwhelmingly litigating in that arena. And the, the big deal about this Montana decision is that for many years there have been, you know, it's, it's nominally split decisions on this issue of whether a servicer in a mortgage matter is a debt collector or not. And increasingly in the Ninth Circuit, particularly in California, decisions have come out, whether they be in federal court or state court, that mortgage servicers are not debt collectors. And when you mention the strict liability component, that's very important for the radio listeners to, uh, to kind of get the, the import of that. Strict liability in law means intent does not matter if you simply show the predicate elements of whatever the statute, whatever the cause of action is calling for, if you can show that the defendant did those things, strict liability means they're automatically liable. So one big way that defendants in these cases, particularly the institutional defendants, who are subject to the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act, one big thing they've been doing is getting rulings saying, well, this involves a mortgage. We're not a debt collector. And unfortunately, a lot of courts have signed off on this, but I think this decision could very well move uh, matters on this at least somewhat more in the, in the other direction. I'd like to see it moved a lot more. As Neil was saying, these findings and this, this you know, long ruling, all the holdings in here, they should absolutely be repopulated into pleadings. And California is a primary place for that because FDCPA is on life support in mortgage cases here. And this is a really strong holding for our side. I think it's, uh, it's absurd. And, and uh, the decisions that have come out of many courts, not just in the West, about a servicer uh, not being a debt collector. I mean, clearly the, uh, the statute makes a difference between the actual creditor and an agent for the creditor, and the statute is aimed at the agent. But to say that uh, this involves a mortgage, not the collection of a debt, is just absurd because the enforcement of the so-called mortgage as a collateral 
is done for the purpose of what? Collecting a debt. And what we have found is, in case after case after case now, I mean, I think many of the listeners already know this, is that it's, these cases are never brought in the name of, a, of an actual creditor. So they're all agents. And, of course, what they're admitting to by their argument is that they have no interest in the money. They just want the foreclosure so that it looks like, by virtue of some court order, um, it looked and a sale, it looks like everything that went on before was valid. It was true. It was, you know, uh, authentic when it wasn't. And especially when you have uh, companies like Bayview and others that come into the situation uh, often long after a supposed default and they're not doing anything other than enforcing the debt. And so for them to be considered anything other than a debt collector is crazy, and it reminds me of the AMGAR strategy that we use, which is, you know, 16 times now we've heard from the other side, we don't have to accept the money, we want the foreclosure. Well, I know that's true, that's what they want. They're not interested in the money. They're not interested in the house, actually. They want the foreclosure sale. They want the foreclosure judgment because that will raise a presumption that everything they did before was legal. So one of the things that you frequently see uh, is they, they give you one false paper and then they build on it with more false papers. So the uh, uh, the notice of default, which was defective for other reasons too, erroneously identified Bayview Loan Servicing as the beneficiary. That wasn't a mistake because then they Bayview Loan Servicing, having announced itself as the beneficiary, then assigned the deed of trust to U.S. Bank as trustee and then assigned it again to another entity identified as uh, uh, Alphabet Soup. Um, and it was, um, uh, and Bayview then represented in court that it was acting as attorney in fact for U.S. Bank for purposes of the second assignment when it had no, when none of them had any authority, they were all strangers to the transaction. So it turns out that these entities, CBO6 REO and CBO6 Corp, etc., they were trying to say it's a typographical error. But the court, the trial court found, and the Montana Supreme Court found that those entities were not in existence when they were used and they were not in existence um, uh, even when the assignment was recorded. Again, 
we see many courts that that dismiss these objections as de minimis. What difference does it make? You know, you, you got the loan, didn't you? You didn't make the payments, right? Well, this case takes a major step in leveling the playing field. So this is the Supreme Court of Montana talking, not me. Bayview informed the Jacobsons that it was now servicing their loan on behalf of U.S. Bank with knowledge that U.S. Bank was not the beneficiary. Bayview falsely represented that CBO6REO Corp. existed and that the Jacobson loan was transferred to the entity on June 10, 2010. Bayview also misrepresented that it was servicing the loan on behalf of CBO6REO Corp. and that the non-existent entity was Jacobson's creditor. So here are the findings of the court and the checklist that I was referring to, and then I want to get into the um, table-funded loans because that's what's behind all this in reality. Um, the finding was that Baby was in violation of the FDCPA because, get ready for a list, it engaged in FDCPA collection activity. It told the Jacobsons to stop making payments and then commenced foreclosure. It informed the Jacobsons that it could not reinstate their, uh, their loan within five days prior to the foreclosure sale. It failed to provide a date for cure of the default. It wrongfully appointed Peterson as trustee. It attempted to foreclose the property with a defective trustee. It falsely represented that it held a beneficial interest as servicer. It falsely promised to modify the loan in Jacobson's favor. It falsely informed the Jacobsons that they were not qualified for the HAMP program. It falsely notarized the assignment of the trust indenture to a corporation that did not exist. It falsely recorded the assignment to a fictitious creditor without authority. It made false representations in discovery by providing false answers and withholding documents. It, contact, it contacted the Jacobsons while they were represented by counsel. So you have there, and there's, there's more I could be quoting from. I could talk about this case for a day. Um, one of the things about the whole HAMP thing was uh, Bayview notified the Jacobsons that they had been turned down for a HAMP modification when, in fact, the Jacobsons had not yet uh, even received the modification, the application for modification, much less submitted it. So what that points out is that, in, in my opinion, in virtually all cases, when they tell you that your modification has been turned down by the investor, it went nowhere. It didn't go to an investor. It didn't go to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. It didn't go anywhere other than the servicer that gave you the false information 
that your modification had been turned down. Um, this merely came up like on a schedule, and they sent the notice out, your, your, modif your HAMP modification has been turned down. Nobody had considered it. That, that part of the whole HAMP history, which is now over, because HAMP, uh, there's a new one in place now, but HAMP itself uh, expired at the end of December. That really tells you what was really going on and that the objective at all times by these so-called servicers and by these people who are masquerading as creditors, the objective is foreclosure. They're not in the modification business. They're in the foreclosure business. And the reason they're in the foreclosure business is because they're answering to the super banks on Wall Street who have stolen, that's my opinion, trillions of dollars out of the U.S. economy and are being allowed to retain it. And before we go to table funding, let me just suggest to people that they look at causes of action for disgorgement of money received from the borrower or money received on behalf, on behalf of the borrower by any of these players or money received in relation to the account, the loan account, because there is uh, some recent case law that indicates that disgorgement might not be subject to an affirmative defense of the statute of limitations. So now let's move over to table-funded loans. Charles, define what a table-funded loan is under regulation. No, absolutely, Neil. Uh, in California, table funding became an issue back in the 90s, and the relevant statutes... They came out of the Business and Professions Code. They came out of the Finance Code. They came out of the Realtor Code. And what all these are directed at, at addressing is a situation where you've got a you've got a, a mortgage loan. You know, it's either potential or in escrow or already completed, and you've got the the party who's actually providing the money is not the actual um, party who's listed on the documents, and particularly at the time of closing, particularly as to the HUD-1 settlement, which is supposed to accurately reflect the real lender of the money, even under federal law. So the term table funding is kind of a, a – uh, I, I wouldn't use the word slang term, but – it's a term of art to describe a situation where the real provider of the money to a mortgage loan contract is not the party that's actually on on the HUD one and and on the documents that uh, that show the loan, including the uh, deed of trust, including the promissory note. And of course, we know in this whole foreclosure situation that this 
this practice is extremely common, and it has been, you know, even before the mortgage meltdown, going back to the early 2000s. And California tried to to rein this in, not because of the the mortgage meltdown, because again, these these statutes were passed back in the 90s. California tried to rein this in because California is a a big, broad, you know, blue world, beautiful world place. And, you know, various people come here not necessarily intending to scam or flim-flam, but lots of it ends up happening here and lots of it gravitates here. And there still are, you know, you could kind of loosely call them con artists out there who will hold themselves out as providing money for uh, a mortgage transaction, but in reality, they're really getting the money from somewhere else. And if it's a true flim-flam, they don't even know where the money's coming from. And so the escrow could even break down over it. And th- those kinds yeah. of problems were, were meant to be addressed by this statutory framework. It's also meant to keep mortgage brokers from double, de- double dealing because when a mortgage broker holds himself out as lining you up as the borrower with a mortgage loan, he can't all of a sudden show up at closing as the party providing the money. Table funding st- restrictions are absolutely meant to, to, to prevent that. Um, sure, Neil, what were you going to say? I think that the original reason for Reg Z, which prohibits table-funded uh, loans, is that way back in the 60s when this first came up, in the Truth in Lending Act and the, the prime goal of the Truth in Lending Act was to identify the actual lender. That passed because the banks were behind it. They were behind it because they didn't want unlicensed, unregulated entities to be using the license of somebody else to make loans and thereby go around the law. So, in other words, if they were in a uh, a part of a criminal or illegal enterprise um, where they couldn't get a license on their own, um, and then they use, you know, ABC Lending, which does have a license, um, the consumer, of course, doesn't know what's going on, but... One of the interesting things about the Montana case is that these laws were passed specifically for, and this is from the case, the least sophisticated consumer and that it applies to all consumers, whether whether they are gullible or whether they are shrewd. So the interesting thing about that background history is that here we have the banks themselves being engaged in what I would call criminal enterprise and using uh, Quicken Loans or American Brokers Conduit or, you know, I could list hundreds of them. Uh, Most of them went out of business. Um, To hide behind so that when the lawsuit, the inevitable lawsuits start for bad underwriting, bad lending practices, deceit, fraud, et uh, et cetera, 
that it would that the suits would be brought against these other entities rather than City or BOA or Wells Fargo or Chase, what have you. And in the end, the fact that the payee on the note is not the party that gave the loan puts the note at the very least in contention. I would argue that the note is void unless it comes into the hands of somebody who paid for it. Um, and the same is true for the mortgage, which should never have, neither the note nor the mortgage have, should have been released from the closing table, and in fact, much less recorded. Um, and the importance of that is that even for something as immediate as rescission, um, if somebody uh, exercised their three-day right of rescission, there's a three-day period after the, the so-called closing date, and they said, no, I don't want to do this anymore, the person that they actually thought they were doing business is long gone. The actual party who loaned the money is another patsy who doesn't even know the transaction occurred, and the agent for that illegal act um, is unknown, uh, sometimes to this day, uh, many times for this, to this day, is unknown to the borrower, and the borrower is left hanging in the wind. That's what these statutes in all the states were designed to prevent, but because it's the banks doing it, somehow the law has evolved uh, in, in a bad direction such that tens of millions of people ended up being thrown onto a battlefield with no armor and no weapons against these mammoth banking and financial institutions. And predictably, most of them lost or ran off the battlefield. They just gave up. And by the way, Neil, you know, even on this issue of table funding, I'm starting to use this uh, in my causes of action, and I'm getting, I'm getting mixed results. I mean, this particular case, one of the reasons I wanted to address this case, and we can talk about it more on a future show, is that on the table funding issue, the judge actually disagreed that table funding was a reason to treat the transaction void. And, you know, cited some uh, what amount to institutional defenses that line up with what you were just talking about in terms of protecting institutional investors from a type of statute which, in a way, directly speaks to what they've been doing. Uh, the decision where it was very favorable to our side, and this is why the motion for the judgment on the pleadings, which is similar to a a motion for summary judgment. This case was going to go to trial on homeowner bill of rights issues, and so they brought a motion for judgment on the pleadings on the defense side. You know, it was very well developed in terms of pleading, top-notch California law firm on the other side. And what ended up happening 
And this decision, by the way, just came down literally uh, less than a couple of weeks ago. So uh, the reality is that the the order itself representing the decision, it found that a later assignment where there's a broken chain of assignment can create a void transaction where it's a post-auction case. So it directly followed Ivanova and it cites Ivanova. It doesn't even cite some of the intermediary cases since Ivanova. And as I pointed out before, there's way too little law on our side after Ivanova, even related to the void versus voidable issue that favors our side. Nevertheless, it directly cited Ivanova, and because it's uh, California Supreme Court precedent, this decision coming out of Alameda County, which is one of the counties in California that you know has 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 a lot of money, has a lot of commerce, the judging is at a higher standard. Bottom line, they they found for the plaintiff our side, and they're allowing. The, the case is actually meanwhile settled, by the way. But apart from that, the um, the case would have gone forward to trial, which is one big reason it settled on on the fact that well after the loan origination, way back in the usual period of the early two thousands, this loan was transferred from yet another U.S. bank. Securitized Trust. Purportedly, it was transferred to uh, to NationStar through the so-called beneficiary Bank of America. But in reality, you don't see Bank of America anywhere on the chain of title. And this court called called the defendants on that fact. I mean, what's interesting about this decision is it's very well developed and worded. They address every aspect. They sign off on the MERS nonsense. MERS was in the middle of this at the beginning. They sign off on it, as so often happens in these cases in California. They cite Yehudai to sign off on denying um, that a late assigned uh, a late assigned loan into a specific securitized trust, meaning the U.S. Bank securitized trust, because that was assigned late as well. However. They cite Yehudai to say that's no big deal. We're not we're not going to void this because of that. And yet they still treat the the other chain of assignment problems later on in the development of the chain of assignments leading all the way up to the the foreclosure. They cite that as creating you know a basis for moving the case to trial based on voidness. And the other powerful thing that happened here is that there was a statute of limitations issue. They ignored that because of the voidness argument. Uh, there was a loan modification that was accepted as valid as recently as 2011. Some of these cases in California get shot down because somebody did a loan mod, because the borrower did a loan mod either recently or even three or four years previously. This judge shot down that argument saying, the loan mod doesn't matter because the transactions are all void 
So they take the, the chain of assignment break that was created when U.S. Bank tried to use Bank of America, who was never in the chain of title, to say that they were the beneficiary transferring to uh, NationStar. That was all broken out. And because of finding that, at least on its face, Floyd, to be proved at trial, of course, all of the later, the later uh, trustee documents, the notice of default, the notice of trustee sale, all the claims that the loan mod mattered, all of that was thrown out by the judge. I mean, this is a really powerful opinion, and the fact that it's 2017 in California, I think should get, give everyone some hope. I, I think so, too, and I, I think it should be pointed out uh, that there's been a policy decision made here. And basically, what the courts, what government in general is saying is we know the foreclosures are wrongful. We know the, uh, the notes and mortgages are defective or void, but we think it's probably best to let this, uh, let the foreclosures go through, and then we present you with a window for recovery of money damages, which, by the way, is why you see a lot of modifications occur after the so-called sale or after the judgment. And I just think that's a horribly cynical way that this thing has evolved and that it comes from an erroneous view, in my view, erroneous, that it's in the national interest for national security that the banks not pay for their bad behavior. And instead, that it's okay to sacrifice the lives of tens of millions of Americans um, in in the hope that it will save our financial system and save our society. Now, you know, there are contrary views that things would have collapsed and everything would have gone to hell and chaos. But I, for one, don't believe that. But it's, you know, that time has come and gone, and it's reflected in you know, a great many of the court decisions, uh, both at the trial level and the uh, appellate level. So, uh, but an interesting thing about those damages, and it comes out in the in the Jacobson case as well, uh, where they quote uh, Wigod versus Wells Fargo Bank, um, because the comeback that most of these servicers and trustees and whatnot say when they're defendants in a lawsuit for damages is that you didn't have any damages. You know, uh, you were upside down on the house anyway. You were this, you were that. We never actually did the foreclosure. All kinds of things that they say in order to say that there really weren't any real damages. The answer that the court said is that the homeowner incurs costs, fees, lost opportunities to save the home, negative impact on credit, never received a modification agreement, couldn't get to a modification agreement, lost their ability to receive incentive payments during the first five years of the modification. 
that's sufficient to establish pecuniary loss. So I have to cut it there. I just realized we have run out of time. Thank you. We'll be back next week. Absolutely. Absolutely, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.